Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment... They had an idea to help expose students of color to the tech industry and also make sure they can connect them with some jobs. So they started a nonprofit called Cold House. We'll have the backstory in just a moment. Also, mentoring and creating a pipeline to get more women in the male-dominated field of architecture. So we have a lot to talk about. But first, some news regarding 2022 Georgia elections. A new candidate in the race to become Georgia's attorney general and keeping along with the current trend of making one's candidacy announcement via video. Well, Democratic State Senator Jen Jordan did the same thing. You see, I know what it's like to be an underdog. To be counted out and not to have a voice. So I'll be an attorney general that fights every day for Georgians that don't have power, for those who just need a fair shot. I'll be your voice, always. Stay tuned, because I'm sure there'll be more. Senator Jordan is currently a law firm partner in Sandy Springs and has been in the state Senate since 2018. She joins former prosecutor Charlie Bailey, also a Democrat, who nearly lost a car in 2018. In other news, officials with the Atlanta-based Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are meeting today to review a small number of severe reactions to the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Now, this comes after the recommendation of the CDC and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Health officials say they found six reports of the severe of severe blood clotting out of more than 6.8 million of the Johnson & Johnson doses administered. Now, officials stress these reactions are rare but they definitely want to take some precaution. Meanwhile, here in Georgia, public health officials are pausing appointments for the J&J vaccine until further notice. And the Georgia Department of Public Health reports none of those six cases of the severe blood clots occurred here in the state. In fact, they say they are working to provide vaccines from Pfizer or Moderna for people who have been set to get the J&J shot. So make sure you check in with the state to find out how you can get that fixed. Now, all this continues in efforts to increase the vaccination rate here in Georgia. So far, 4.8 million vaccine doses have been administered here in Georgia. And the total number of confirmed cases at this time, as we go all the way back to last year, is 862,000. 720 and 17,017 Georgians have died due to the virus. The total number of hospitalizations is now 59,779. And finally, some good news for parents and students who attend Georgia's public universities and colleges. They will not see an increase in the tuition next fall. I hear this loud applause all over the state. Officials with the University System of Georgia say this is a made possible due to federal relief money and a small increase in state funding. The USG Board of Regents voted for all of this yesterday, and the vote cements the same tuition rate at all 26 USG institutions for the 2021-2022 academic year. And typically, Georgia undergraduates was charged just over 7000 in tuition and mandatory fees this year. And this is the second year in a row that the board has voted to approve a recommendation of no tuition increase. Good news for all. Now, coming up in just a moment, a conversation with the founders of a nonprofit, which is going to help students of color and also connect them within the tech industry. It's called Cold House, and they're all excited because I'm looking at them now on Zoom. It's coming up after break. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. 
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. A few years ago, five Cornell University students started a nonprofit. Why? Well, as they believe, I'm going to quote them here, all children, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status, had equal potential to compete intellectually in our society. We were tired of children being written off because of where they were born or whom they were born to. Close quote. And so they started something called Practice Makes Perfect. This organization works to narrow the achievement gap for low-income public schools. And it's that same spirit behind another organization we're about to get into, behind the creation of Code House. And as always, there's a backstory here. So joining me now with more is Ernest Holmes. He's president and CEO, president and co-founder of Code House. Also, Tavis Thompson, he's vice president and co-founder of Code House. J.C. Holmes, director of curriculum and instruction of Code House, and also a Spelman College professor. Welcome to you all. How are Hello. you? Doing? Hi. Uh, first of all, are the parents listening? They are. Absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's begin with each of you telling our Closer Look listeners where you graduated from and what was your major. Ernest, I'll start with you. Yeah, for sure. So we actually got to meet when I graduated from Morehouse College, class of 2019, also known, which we didn't know back then, is now the debt-free class. I got their tuition paid off by Robert Smith. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, I was actually out in California. I'm a full-time software engineer at Google, but I currently um, relocated back to Atlanta, so I'm back back home. Okay, and uh, JC? Yes. Hi. Uh, the non-debt-free class is not applied to my class at Spelman. <laughs> uh, I am a class of 2016 graduate of Spelman College, as as well as a graduate um, of New York University, uh, where I got my master's. All right. And Tavis? Awesome. Yeah. So I graduated class of 2020 at Morehouse College with a degree in computer science. After graduating, I started full time at Microsoft as a program manager. And right now I'm based in Atlanta as well. All right. Now that sets the stage for what we're about to talk about, because Ernest, I want to go back to 2019 when we met, because you were one of the profiles in our Road to Graduation series. And by the way, listeners, that's going to continue in the next couple of weeks. Here's a little of what we talked about back then. You giving back, teaching middle and high school students and and those that might have an interest in the STEM fields. And you and I both know that there are all these initiatives to get more kids of color and especially young girls, but more kids of color involved in at least looking at STEM careers. Definitely. Why has that been important to you? So working at Google has been a great experience. I I definitely enjoyed it. Um, But right now, two of the biggest words that you hear in corporate America are diversity inclusion. Mm -hmm. That's all you hear. Diversity inclusion, diversity inclusion. We need to make our uh, workforce more diverse. And if you guys look at the numbers, like over at Google, Microsoft, all these big companies, they're one or two percent black. Mm -hmm. Like if you let that sit in one percent black, that means when I was over there interning, I'll look around there will be one other brother <laughs> sitting at, at a desk near me, you know? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. We had a beach day at Google last summer, and all the black, it was a black Google network, and the entirety of, like, the black people at Google were on that beach. <laughs> we could take a picture <laughs> together, you know? like So that's, like, insane I'm to me. I'm not laughing at it, but, it's, but it, it paints, I think it paints a perfect picture for people Definitely. listening who don't understand, you know, what that feels like. Exactly. Exactly. So, Ernest, and staying with you, diversity in tech, in the short time you've been working in the tech industry professionally now, are you seeing more initiatives with that? And we call it DEI now because it's diversity and equity and inclusion. And and I hope I can come up with another word because I'm not sure if the DEI, if it's getting a little bit played out, but that's a whole other segment. But are you seeing more initiatives in this area in, in tech and with the DEI and that whole movement? For sure, especially with the summer that we had last uh, year, 
there's a lot, a lot of pressure on major tech companies on their diversity, equity, inclusion efforts right now. So it's funny because that actually attributed to some of the success that we're having with Codehouse and really expanding because we're getting hit up, hit up by companies left and right now because they're like, oh, we hear that you're working with HBCU students. We hear you're working with students of color in K-12. Like, how can we help with this pipeline? JC, I want you to chime in on that. Are we seeing a lot more of these efforts? You know, Ernest talked about what happened last year through your lens. Is that a big part of the, the, the reason why? Absolutely. And as Ernest said, like there's just a new uh, focus on making sure that the diversity and inclusion that we see in our everyday lives is represented in tech. Uh, we need people different from different backgrounds at the table making decisions on the products that we use every single day. Uh, and of course, on the academic side, uh, especially working at an HBCU now as a professor, uh, we want the best for our students. We want to make sure that they are in position to lead the next generation of technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. Uh, so from all parts, uh, industry and academia, we're seeing this new focus on making sure that our students are getting where they need to be. Tavis, what about you? Through your lens, what are you seeing? Most definitely. So like Ernest stated, like around the time of the George Floyd incident, we've seen a lot of traction, a lot of visibility on like just in, increasing the di diversity in tech. And so that was that was one thing that I realized, like I remember seeing like a lot of different companies reaching out to us, just asking us like, okay, what are you, um, I see that, like Ernest said, I see that you guys are doing a lot of efforts in terms of just like trying to bring more diversity and inclusion within tech, how can we help? And so that was one thing that I realized, but I also, after joining Microsoft, I realized there was a lot of things that like companies were doing internally as well. Mm -hmm. So I realized I started seeing multiple um, organizations and events coming up on my calendar about like trying to find ways just to like have different talks with different students. And so you really start to see a new lens of just conversation being talked about, about like how can these tech companies help? How can these tech companies like, project the the just project the diversity mm -hmm. and, and inclusion in tech so um i'll say personally like after like just that incident with george floyd they a lot of companies realize that there are different ways that we can help these different communities and so it was for me being from the south side of chicago it brought warmth into my heart to realize to see that like companies are realizing that they could do more for the community and realize they can bring more impact and we're going to talk more about what you all expect from these companies when they want to partner with you. But, Ernest, I want to go back to the backstory, the origin story. Because when you sat here in this studio in 2019, was Code House somehow developing or were you, did it just what's the backstory here? Yeah. Uh, so Tavis, myself and a few other students from the Atlanta University Center came together and wanted to put together one event where we brought students from the local area to the AUC, expose them to HBCUs, but then also expose them to people of color in tech. Um, so in April 2019, we worked together and we wanted to bring 150 middle and high school students to Morehouse um, and then invited Google and Microsoft and Dell and IBM and Twilio. We had like nine companies there that first year. And more importantly, we had representation that looked like the students that were bringing. So they got to hear from black directors and software engineers and Hispanic product managers and designers about what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, how much money they make, what's so cool about being in tech, all the cool innovations that they're doing, and what it's like through a lens of a person of color, how it is in tech. And honestly, it was truly powerful seeing the impact it was having on the students, so much to the point where after the event, like people were asking us, when's the next event? You know, they're coming up to Tavis and me and the rest of the team, and they were just like, oh, we can't wait until next year. And this is not just faculty and staff from Morehouse Home in Park Atlanta. This is teachers from the, the schools that we brought. These are students themselves talking to us about we can't wait until the next event. So we came together and made it into a 501c3 nonprofit, and it's been going <laughs> going up since then. JC, I want to bring you into the conversation because, by the way, you, you've known Ernest for a long time, correct? You know, just a few years here and there. Because uh, he's your brother. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the role of, of HBCUs in terms of being part of this. We always talk about this pipeline that's needed. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm old enough to be your mom. But, you know, you people always say, well, we can't find candidates. I'm like, what do you mean you can't find candidates? They say about public radio. And they still say that sometimes. We can't find people, people of color that want to work in public radio. I'm like, what? Come on. But when it comes to the role of the HBCUs, 
through your lens, how important is that when we talk about creating this pipeline of, of candidates in the tech field? Absolutely. And I, I, I'm going to speak from an anecdotal place. I'm just talking about my own perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm a Spelman graduate, uh, class of 2016. And when I first started um, my matriculation at Spelman, I didn't know any computer scientists who weren't Black women. I knew my classmates. I knew my professors. All of them were Black women. And at that time, uh, it was a shock for me to go out into the world and go into industry to see like, oh, it's not just black women running the show, that there's actually a serious diversity problem in tech. So when we talk about HBCUs, what they're giving students is the confidence and the um, power to pursue uh, degrees and to pursue subjects that were initially told uh, or that were not necessarily doors that black women especially could walk through. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was, Ernest and I, we grew up in a predominantly white town uh, in New Jersey. And the number of times where I was discouraged from pursuing STEM subjects, or the number of times where I was told that I didn't look like a you know, mathematician or someone who could major in these subjects. Who told you that, JC? I had former teachers, former classmates, uh, absolutely. Um, people in my community who told me they loved and cared about me Uh, that would tell me these things, putting me in a box that I knew I did not belong in, right? So when I went to Spelman, it gave me a newfound power and confidence to pursue whatever it is that I wanted. In this case, it was computer science and design. So Spelman told me that I could go out there and change the world. Uh, And now with Ernest and Tavis, that's exactly what we're doing. If I could brag on my sister for a second, this is also someone who graduates Spelman in three years. And it's probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest professor at Spelman at 25 years old. So people were telling her this stuff growing up. And like, I can confirm that because I also heard it myself. But she was more than capable of doing everything that they were saying that she couldn't. So it's, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because I have a lot of colleagues who were told they couldn't work in public radio because they had an urban sound. Sounds familiar. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not about me. Tap us <laughs> through your lens and talk about the importance of the HBCUs playing this. Most definitely. So I'll go back all the way from my senior year of high school where I met Ernest. And so like coming from the South South Chicago, a lot of times like people tell us that the ways that you could be successful in life are through your physical attributes by, by being a basketball player, being an athlete or being a singer or being an entertainer. Those are the ways that like in my community, I was taught that you could be um, wealthy and affluent. But once I got to Morehouse, I met Ernest. Ernest was actually my Amendment Students Weekend host. And so he showed me around Morehouse and like at first I wasn't going to go to an HBCU but like after Ernest showed me around Morehouse and at the end he told me one thing that will always stick with me he said as a freshman I have an internship at Google and he said if I come to Morehouse he will help me do the same thing and so like I wanted to spend the lens on this because like for me personally I think it's the students within the HBCU that can make a huge impact on the other students like for Ernest he was very influential to me and like with him just saying those three words three or those multiple words I was like I was sold and so ever since then I came down to Morehouse I received an internship as a freshman at Facebook and so it's just like having that community having that community I'm gonna say that one more time having that community is so impactful and it's like so for um, me I would say like the students and like the the type of like energy and the type of impact that we can have together mm-hmm. is something that I realized that um, you know how the HBCU kind of shaped that experience and can help us you know bring more students into the tech industry. Ernest, when you hear JC, I'm sorry, when you when you hear Tavis talk about this, what goes to your mind, man? I mean, people who know me, I'm not like an emotional person, so I, you know, I, I don't, I don't like to get sappy on it. But oh, go so- get sappy! It's public radio; yeah, we yeah. get sappy all the time. <laughs> but it's so real. Um, like, like how Tavis says he's indebted to me. I'm indebted to my sisters. I would not have been at Morehouse College if you gave me a million dollars and said like. I bet you're going to Morehouse, um, an all-black male school in Atlanta, Georgia. My junior senior year in high school, I would have like not like not a one in a million chance that was going down there. But seeing everything that my sister did, and she literally got to meet Bernie Sanders when he was running for uh, president, and met the Pope in Italy, and doing all these amazing things because she went to a place um, called an HBCU. I was like, okay, let me consider it. And I always say to like now, and when I talk to students like like Tavis when he was in high school. Like, this is the best decision I ever made. And I didn't know I had to make it. 
Um, so it really means a lot to all three of us. And the impact that now Taz is having on other students himself is is amazing to see. And we always paid for JC. So then when you hear little brother Ernest talk about you, what goes through your mind? Oh, yeah. Rose, I'm going to have to go ahead and save this interview uh, just because, Ernest, all your success is uh, mine, my doing. <laughs> uh, no, um, it, it, It's so true. Community is everything. I would not be who I am without my brother in the same way that he would not be who he is without, you know, me and Tavis. Uh, we would not be as far along without the communities that encouraged us, right? Taking us out of the boxes that we put ourselves in or that other people have put us in and showing us that we can change the world in whatever way, you know, we feel called to do so. Uh, and so I think of my Spelman sisters, my HBCU family, my mentors and professors that I've had that have gotten me to where I am. That's what we're trying to do with Code House, right? So we've had all of these many blessings that you've just heard about. And now we're trying to bring that to the next generation, the students who are in high school, the students who are entering college, who, you know, we're also put in boxes and are now ready to explore, you know, what opportunities are available to them. How can they change the world? How mm -hmm. can they use technology and computer science to do so? Subjects that they may have been afraid of once upon a time. The voice you hear is J.C. Holmes, Director of Curriculum and Instruction of Code House and a Spelman College professor, also joined by our brother Ernest Holmes, President and Co-Founder of Code House, currently a software engineer at Google, and Tavis Thompson, Vice President and Co-Founder of Code House and a Program Manager at Microsoft. Let's dig a little bit more into Code House and how all this works. Now, Ernest, you started a while ago. You said how all these organizations now were wanting to come on board and, and I guess, you know, wanting to write a nice, you know, some funding, a nice big check. But it's more than that. It's more than just writing a check. Take our listeners through what Code House is doing. And then also you have some scholarships that are available, too. Yeah. Yeah. So um, since that first event that I told you about 150 students, we then had a second event where 400 students came out to the AUC. More students, more companies, more engagement. Tavis and I are members of Alpha Phi Fraternity Incorporated. So we had, you know, some Greek influence in there. Um, and then more, most recently, because everything is virtual, we did a virtual Tech Exposure Day event where we had 2,000 students nationally come from 20 different states. Same thing, more companies gave out $20,000 in laptops and prizes and brand new Xbox Ones and all, or uh, Xbox Series Xs and all that. And even a $10,000 scholarship to a student who is now on the Code House team because of how, um, <laughs> how great she has been um, uh, just always showing up and always wanting, uh, yearning for experiences. And what we just announced a few weeks ago was the Code House Scholars Initiative. And this is all about supporting students who make the choice to go to an HBCU, make the choice to go into tech and supporting them along that journey. So we'll be providing $20,000 scholarships to students um, who get into the program, along with the four week summer academy where they're gonna be building technical and leadership skills um, run by my sister, JC Holmes. And then a mentorship program where each scholar is gonna get a near peer mentor from a participating HBCU and uh, students who are juniors and seniors, a little more senior than them. And then also industry mentors from our par company partners um, that Tavis is actually all over, he's over the mentorship program. And you know, none of this would have been possible without our major uh, funder, PayPal, who supported, who is supporting us at $1.5 million. So uh, talking about, it's not just a financial investment, like yes, financially, we need the money, of course, students need funding to go to school. School is very expensive. As we know, the student debt crisis is very big, mm -hmm. but it's also about investing in the community, providing those mentors, doing workshops to teach these students the technical skills that they need to be successful within the field. All of that truly matters. And that's how you build community to make sure that all these students are gonna be successful within this pathway. Tavis, talk about the excitement from these students when they are able to, even even though last year I know it was virtual, but talk about mm -hmm. the excitement with the students when they're sort of opened up to this world of ideas and opportunities in the tech field. Most definitely. So once you like, so I remember from February, our second tech exposure day, I remember seeing all the students coming inside and seeing like all these different tech companies being able to see Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Dell, Adobe, like their eyes just widen. And so you already know that they're already excited to see what 
this day has in store. And like throughout the day, you just see a lot of energy and a lot of um, just commotion about like an excitement about just being in this space. Mm -hmm. And so I would say personally, like just being able to see the students, you know, try on these new Oculus Go's or like the Microsoft HoloLens and like showing them like these are different technologies that are out there because thinking about like these different these different students, they don't get exposed to this. They don't have no exposure to the new Oculus Go or like any type of VR headset, but putting them in that space, they're able to see, oh, this is what a VR headset looks like. So it already, you know, exposed them to different type of possibilities that they can do with that. Like they could possibly make their own games, make their own applications that can, you know, possibly benefit the world. But like, it's all about that exposure piece that um, Ernest talked about, right? So being able to expose these students to all these great opportunities. And so like, for me, I remember one person particularly, her name is Tiffany Grace. And so like Ernest was talking about her, that's the one that we gave the scholarship to. But since the first tech exposure day, she was one of the most excited people I ever met. She asked so many questions. She went to each booth and asked like, hey, how can I get an internship? How can I be a part of the Google Summer, you know, initiative? And so like we, um, so she's a part of our team right now, but she also received an internship at Melship as a senior in high school. And at the same time, got into the um, Google CSSI program, which is a program that kind of helps and build the foundational skills for these students once they get into, into college. So like, it's, it's great to see like the change that we're having just by seeing like the excitement out of the students. So like it all started with excitement. And from that excitement has been so many opportunities for this student, for these students. I don't want to put anybody on front street, but JC, you all are under the age of 25. And, you know, someone listening may say, well, this is great. How come someone didn't come up with this <laughs> years ago? And I, I want to be fair because there are programs out there. We know we've got some fine programs with our folks at the different, you know, institutions. But, you know, what you all are doing because you're meeting the kids where they are and you're right there with them. And maybe your age does play a role in this because for some of you, you're close to them in age. Absolutely. Um, so uh, this is where we shout out our parents once again, Tavis's mom, our parents. Uh, you know, they taught us to take any blessing that we have and turn right back around and pass it forward, right? Give it to the next generation. Uh, and so while everything is still fresh in our minds, where we see like what opportunities were available to us, how do you get from point A to point B when it comes to, you know, defining your tech career, we want to give that information to the next generation while it's still fresh in our mind. Yes, I'm 25, Ernest is 23, Tavis, you're 22. Uh, so I think we're doing this while we're young because we just had to go through it a few mm -hmm. years ago. Right. It's still fresh in our mind um, and especially us being historically black college graduates. Right. Morehouse College and Spelman College. We understand exactly what they're going through when it comes to coming from an HBCU and going into a predominantly white tech industry. Uh, and so, again, passing that information forward while it's still fresh in our minds is of the utmost importance. Let's talk about then preparation because I've had so many conversations and I know he's listening right now. His name is Dr. Kamal Bob about the pipeline that he even has to start earlier. And he has done so much work in education in terms of looking at the disparity between kids at the public school level, at the elementary school level. So you all see that that also being important that we reach kids as early as possible, as soon as possible. And Tavis, I'll let you take that one. Most definitely. So like um, one thing that I realized just growing up is I saw like a lot of students like from different races that were receiving like technical, like learning how to code at like seven, eight years old. So by the time they get into the, the tech company, they're already skillful at what they do. So like one thing that we are trying to do at Cold House is you're trying to inspire these students to start as early as possible, get these skills early as possible because it helps you at least get that exposure as early as possible because as you get exposed, you get interested in those different fields. And as you get interested in those fields, that's how that's how you become an expert in those different those different fields and those different industries and so that's like one thing that we're trying to do right now is like okay we see that you're you know seven and eight here how about we you know we show you what like a software engineer software engineer does or like for example what does a meteorologist do so like that's like one thing that my mom did for me um she showed she showed me all the different possibilities that were out in the world and she said you know what you choose so as a kid you know usually students will say like oh I want to be a rapper or I want to be a doctor or, I want to be a lawyer I would say I want to be a meteorologist that's mm -hmm. what I used to say because I like my mom she 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 put she instilled in me at an early age that you could do anything you put your mind to so if anything is interesting to you you go look at it and you go do more research on it and so that's like one thing that we're just trying to do at co-house hey here's some new you know new fields that we want to show you here's a program manager here's a software engineer here's a 
here's a product, here's a product designer. These mm -hmm. are different things that you can do. Now, let's see if you're interested in them. And if you are, let's help you become an expert in them so you can excel in that industry. Ernest, it sounds like you all are doing a wonderful job as it relates to the students. Now, let's talk about the other side, because when you talk to these tech firms, do you also give them a little, I won't say lecture, but do you also tell them that, look, it's just so much more than just inviting these kids or giving them an internship. When we talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, it's also making sure that that culture, that that workplace environment, that it's a good experience. And what do you all tell these tech firms about, listen, I know y'all want to partner with us, but it, it takes something almost like maybe a declaration on their, in, on their part in terms of what the experience is going to be like for these students. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad you bring this up because the pitch is a little tricky. Because we're not saying like you give us a hundred thousand dollars and you're gonna get ten black engineers. Like we're not doing that. We're trying to be very um, vocal about that because that's not what we aim to do. Mm -hmm. And one one of the first conversations that we had with several VPs at PayPal, we actually talked about that. How like we're not trying to do a one to one relationship where you're sponsoring fifteen students or thirty students and they're on to come to your company. No, our goal is to get these students acclimated to the tech industry so they can succeed in the tech industry, mm -hmm. whether they go into entrepreneurship and do their own startup, where they come to your company, whether they come to Google or Microsoft, right? Maybe they go into academia and become a professor like JC, right? No matter where they come, as long as they're in the tech industry, it's going to benefit all of us. You know, you take someone like myself, like I'm not working at PayPal or Microsoft, but those are two, two of our biggest sponsors right now. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely seeing results of students coming into their organizations. Right. So um, I think it's 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 a it's a tricky pitch because it's not an immediate return of investment. But the play is long term. This is how mm -hmm. we make systematic change. Um, this is how we have systemic impact. Let's talk about then the future. Where do you hope Code House will go from maybe a year from now? We all move fast, so I'm not going to say five years, but maybe a year from now. And JC, I'll start with you. Where would you like yeah. to see Code House go? Uh, I want to say when it comes, we've been very fortunate to work with companies who see the bigger picture, right? To see that it is not enough just to get black engineers or POC engineers or people of color uh, on the ground floor, right? We're not looking for low-level employees uh, here. We're training the next generation of leaders, entrepreneurs, and innovators. And if you're not having that conversation about how do we train the next CEOs that are coming from HBCUs or the next entrepreneurs or the next new businesses, right? If we're not having the conversation of like, you're training people so that eventually they can buy your, or you can buy their startup or they can buy you out one day. Uh, if we're not having that conversation, then, then there's no hope for the future, right? But we've been very fortunate to think about how do we take Codehouse uh, and have, we've have been having these conversations about how do we take on um, Codehouse and make sure that we are always focusing on giving students innovation and ownership over ideas, right? How do we turn them into just low-level employees, but to actually create um, innovators and entrepreneurs uh, and to help them develop the skills that'll make them the leading experts and leading entrepreneurs in different fields. Tavis, what about you? Expectations for Code House? Most definitely. So as of right now, the scholars program that we just implemented, we have it for just Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark. So in the next year, our plan is to expand it to all HBCUs. So being able to give that same type of mentorship and guidance that we receive as, as freshmen and sophomores at, at Morehouse and Spelman, we want to make sure that we give that to all of our HBCU families. That's one thing that is really important to us. Um, another thing is that we really are enjoying, you know, having tech exposure day. That, that's one of our biggest events. So hopefully we could do that at a larger scale. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a surprise. I know me and Ernest me, Ernest, and JC, we've been having a lot of conversations on like where we want to have it, how many students we want to invite. And so I'll let Ernest talk about that if he <laughs> wants to. <laughs> but I'm not the one that likes to spoil surprises at all. <laughs> uh, Ernest, you get the last word here as we wrap up. Where you see Code House in the next year? If you want to make a big announcement, go right ahead. <laughs> no, no big announcement just yet, but some conversations are definitely going to be start having. Uh, 
because we definitely see tech exposure day as a event that's beneficial for all students right so how do we scale it up from 150 to 400 to 2000 to x amount of students in the future and i think we have a team that will will be able to facilitate that i think we're, we're ready to expand it uh tenfold um but with us like Tavis and the scholars initiative this is just the beginning you know we're going to be uh, financially supporting students um professionally helping students, but how do we expand this to as many students as possible? How do we make sure that every student of color who's coming into a computer science major has a mentor that they can rely on and trust that will make sure that they're successful within this field? So the sky's the limit right now, and I can't <laughs> wait to see where it goes. And I do want to mention the scholarship uh, application closes on this Friday. So if you're going to the AUC, Morehouse, Bowen, Clark Atlanta, plan on majoring in computer science or tech-related field, make sure you get the application in. All right. Ernest, Home, Pre Ernest Holmes, president and co-founder of Codehouse. Also, Tavis Thompson, vice president and co-founder of Codehouse. J.C. Holmes, director of curriculum and instruction of Codehouse and a Spelman College professor. Thank you all so much for taking the time. Best of luck to you. Thank you so much for what you're doing for so many kids. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Here we go again with this word, eviction, and the moratorium that now has been extended by the CDC, which now this extension will last until June 30th. But still, despite this ban at this time, more than 8 million Americans are behind on their rent. That's according to data from the U.S. Census Bureau. And there's some uncertainty, uncertainty surrounding what's next for so many households once the moratorium is lifted. We've had this conversation so many times on Closer Look. We're joining me now with an update on all of this is Susan Reef. She's the director of the Eviction Prevention Project at the Georgia Legal Services Program. Susan, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being interested in the topic. Well, let's let's begin with the CDC moratorium because, again, Susan, there's a lot that people ask, what does it actually do, what it doesn't do, you know, will this prevent someone from being evicted up until at least June 30th? And, or is this really kind of complex? Um, it is complex. And I think the best way to describe the CDC order is that it's an imperfect tool. Mm -hmm. um, and we are, our staff at Georgia Legal Services and all the attorneys at Atlanta Legal Aid and other groups are just using it you know, the best we can uh, to prevent evictions. You know, one of the drawbacks about the CDC order is a tenant has to know about it. They have to file the CDC declaration, mm -hmm. complete it, give it to their landlord, and then notify the courts. And so it requires an affirmative act on the part of the tenant, which requires knowledge. And, you know, getting that knowledge throughout the state of Georgia all the different counties is difficult to do. Um, so we do see a lot of people who call us at the last minute where, you know, I'm about to be evicted. We talk to them. We realize that they are covered by the CDC order mm -hmm. and they are protected. They just didn't know until the last minute. And, um, and in a surprising majority of those cases, we're able to get the CDC order signed, delivered to the landlord, notify the courts and notify the sheriffs. But um, in the past year, we've seen an increasing number of those emergency type situations. What has been, do you all, when you talk to landlords and, and, and look, we've been very fair. We've reached out to so many private landlords and we've reached out to associations, you know, because there are there are a lot of sides to this. What do you? I'm just curious. What do you all hear from the landlords? I mean, are some saying they are just too far in debt, and that they really need to get another renter in there? What's that conversation like? With do you have those conversations with landlords? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, we absolutely do uh, because we realize at George Legal Services, um, unlike in a more metropolitan area. Georgia Legal Services serves the 154 counties outside of Atlanta. So we're serving rural Georgia and North Georgia and, 
and areas where the primary source of affordable housing for our client population is not the big sophisticated corporate landlord, it's the mom and pop landlord mm -hmm. who maybe owns five, you know, less than 10 properties, single family homes. You know, they don't have the resources a corporate landlord has to maintain the properties when the rent's not being paid and we don't want them to go out of business. They're vital to providing housing for our client population. Um, so yes, we've had those conversations. You know, one of the, and we do realize there are two sides to it. One of the benefits now to landlords for keeping tenants in the property and, and for a reward for those tenant landlords who have like, you know, kept the tenant in the property is the availability of rental assistance now. Mm -hmm. um, because those landlords, as long as the tenant is in the property in the county served by the Georgia Emergency Rental Assistance Program, they are eligible for rental assistance. And we are working and partnering with the Department of Community Affairs to help the landlords access that. But that's you know, a, in combination with the CDC order, there may be a solution here but for, do, for both the landlords and the tenants. And to your knowledge, are all the counties adhering to this? Uh, Stephanie no. Stokes from our WABE newsroom a while back did a story on a judge who signed off on an eviction and really didn't care about the moratorium. Uh, unfortunately, that is accurate. And that has not changed since that report. Um, and we did see that report have a, a positive impact in one of our counties, but we still have a couple of, of counties where the magistrate court judge just refuses to, to recognize the CDC order. And why? <laughs> I'm just curious. I, you know, it's like I can't run a red light just because I don't. <laughs> want to stop i'm just it's yes. a federal um, yeah and it's you know and for tenants who have an attorney and who can go through the appeal process and, and fight it there is you know there is a remedy for them but you know at georgia legal services we always say if we see one client with a problem there are probably 20 or 30 other clients with that same problem who didn't get to us um so it is just a kind of a battle of attrition at this point is that we just battle each one. What is the call volume of folks every on a daily basis, Susan, into your organization? That, that has been uh, extremely hard. We at Georgia Legal Services have a unit, our advice housing advice line unit that's staffed by three attorneys who are the, primary contact for anyone who calls with a landlord-tenant problem. And, you know, they talk to the person, and then the, if needed, they'll refer them to the local office for, for representation. But I, uh, you know, we have counseled since September over, well over a 1,000 people on the CDC order, in addition to what our offices have counseled people on. And the primary thing that we see are are these the number of emergency calls the number of the sheriff is going to be here i just got to know so they're going to be here in 24 hours what do we do we didn't know about the cdc order can i still be helped and you know those are i have an amazing attorneys on that line but you know they are really um it each call is uh it, it takes a toll on them. And we are always invigorated by the cases that we're able to get the CDC order to the sheriff in time to stop the eviction. But then we always carry the, you know, the, the pain of not in those cases where we aren't able to. And, and unfortunately, we're not in every case we, able to stop the eviction. Mm. We know the federal government has pledged more than $46 billion in rent relief. We know that Georgia recently received some money in rental uh, assistance. We've done a story on that. But according to the National Low Income Housing Coalition, many states have not even set up a rental assistance program. Uh, how would you grade what Georgia is doing? And, and can it be better? You know, what are those challenges? Um, let me, for 
full disclosure, say that Georgia Legal Services has partnered with the Department of Community Affairs mm -hmm. to help tenants access rental assistance. And I think the fact that that we have that partnership demonstrates that the state has been very receptive to understanding that there that uh, the means for applying right now is an electronic portal. Mm -hmm. um, it's a two-part process. Tenant has to apply. Landlord has to apply. They both have to sub submit information. And DCA has done a wonderful job of recognizing that while the portal may be efficient, it's not accessible to everyone. And what we at Legal Services are doing in partnership with them is making sure it is accessible for everyone. Uh, we walk tenants through it. We file the application for them. We help landlords who can't, you know, a lot of our landlords um, can't, don't have the technology or the skills to upload documents into a portal. So mm -hmm. we're, we're doing that, trying to facilitate access. Um, it is, you know, the treasury program is positive and that it's very streamlined. Uh, but, you know, anytime the federal government gives out money, they want documentation of eligibility from everyone. And, and that is just the nature of the program. Mm -hmm. And that's where the barriers are for people is, is uploading things like proof of, of who they are, their driver's license, things like that. We actually even, uh, speaking of Stephanie Stokes from the WAB newsroom just today in a report, uh, in Cobb County, allegedly in, in their rental assistance program, requiring social security numbers through your lens with your expertise because we're talking about federal money here is that legal oh i'm not gonna turn <laughs> an opinion on the legality in that case but it you know each time you request a piece of information from either a landlord or a tenant it's a barrier to accessing the assistance. Mm -hmm. And what's important is each time you have a requirement that you have a way that if that requirement turns into a barrier, it can be addressed. So a fast rule of you always have to have this piece of information. I don't like that. I like, mm -hmm. do you have this information? If you don't have it, these are alternate ways that we can do that. Do they need to know everyone who lives in the household? Because I'm, I'm, yes. I'm where, where I'm going with that is concerns about folks who may have uh, some legal questions regarding their actual citizenship or, or to be lawfully residing in this in this nation. What's important is not the for purposes of the Treasury Department rules, um, the household's eligibility, because to receive rental assistance, the household's income has to be below 80% of mm -hmm. the area median income, which is a HUD calculation. But basically, it's a need base, financial sure. need base. So disclose. So the program that I work with, with DCA, requires the income from anyone who permanently resides in the household and doesn't have another place to live. Um, doesn't live somewhere else. What's important there is not the citizenship, but the, the household income. Mm -hmm. So like I said before, every time there's a piece of information, it can be a barrier. But if I'm talking to a tenant and they have concerns about that, we can figure out a way to provide the needed information, which is, does that person have income as opposed to disclosing status, which, um, is a, which is a separate piece of information that is often not required. The last time you were on the program and we had a theme, a special theme show where we talked about all of this yeah. and many of the folks in this space, like you and others, and we've been hearing this word, uh, eviction tsunami and eviction crisis. We're not sure how much longer the CDC can keep extending the moratorium. Some have said as long as there is a pandemic that's been declared by the World Health Organization, it should exist. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, like I said, the CDC order is an imperfect tool. And one of the main imperfections in it to me is this waiting till the last minute to renew it. Mm. Um, I... I have talked to tenants 
who that last week we get a flood of calls and I help handle, handle some of those calls where people are just like, I don't know what to do. I mean, I have a thousand dollars. That's not enough to pay everything I owe, but if I'm going to be evicted in two days because the CDC order isn't expired, I need to save that money. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Should I move? And you know, I, I have no good answer for them, which is I believe I have indications that the CDC order will be extended, but, you know, I can't tell you for sure it will. Mm -hmm. And that has just been the hardest part of this because, you know, at Christmas time, we were in the same position and now we were in it again at the end of March. And I imagine we will be in it again at June where it's uncertain whether or not it will be extended. And that is stressful on tenants and their families and their children. And Susan, as we wrap up, if someone listening to this conversation worries they may be at risk of eviction or their property manager or landlord, what what resources are there out there for them? Where do you want them to begin? Obviously, you all can help. The- <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. That, I mean, if a tenant is in the position where they are unable to pay their rent, they need to look at filing the CDC declaration before any action is filed in court. Um, and the, in, the um, CDC.gov site has the declaration in multiple languages on its website. At Georgia Legal Services, we have a Facebook page where we have videos which explain how to fill out the CDC order and what it means. That's a great resource. Uh, the important thing is that tenants deliver that CDC declaration to their landlords. And for landlords and tenants who have, you know, this has been going on since September and a lot of past due rent has accrued. Um, tenants are never going to, the tenants I work with, low income tenants, are never going to be able to pay that off and pay their rent moving forward. And that's where rental assistance comes in. Um, the statewide provider of rental assistance is the Department of Community Community Affairs, and they have a website which is Georgia Rental Assistance, mm-hmm. all one word. dot gov. dot I'm sorry, Georgia Rental Assistance, one word. dot ga. dot gov, and landlords and tenants can go to that site and make an application, and they can also reach out to Georgia Legal Services and other agencies that can help them through the application process. And we'll have um, a link on our website to that uh, declaration from the, that the CDC has. It's a file that folks can download or, or you know, print out yep. as they need it. Susan Reef is the director of the Eviction Prevention Project at the Georgia Legal Services Program. Susan, as always, we appreciate you taking the time to come on this program. I know you and your staff are very busy. Thank you again. Well, I always appreciate, appreciate the opportunity to get the information out there. Thank you. Take care now. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. We apologize. We will get to that diversity in women in architecture segment tomorrow. We just ran out of time because we were having such a good time. Again, Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson are our producers. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. As always, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE Politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE Politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.